Hey everyone, John Tillman here, head of media at Fund Loans and producer of the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience. Now before we jump into this episode, I want to take a minute to let you know how you can win some amazing Fund Loans merchandise. Fund Loans is holding two contests to give you an opportunity to win two different merchandise bundles, our Sales Booster Bundle and our Confidence Enhancer Bundle. Our sales booster consists of a wireless iPhone charger, a high quality coffee mug, and special mints to ensure you always have fresh breath. To enter this contest, go to our Fun Loans LinkedIn page and like, share, subscribe, and tag somebody in the comments. The more active you are, the higher your chances are of winning. Our confidence booster bundle consists of a Fun Loans hat, t-shirt, and mints, because let's be honest, you can never have enough fresh breath. To enter this contest, go to our Fun Loans YouTube channel. Like, share, subscribe, and comment on some of our videos, Let's Fun Loans Together. Once again, the more active you are, the higher your chances are of winning. And last but not least, it's important to know that you can enter and potentially win both contests by participating on both LinkedIn and YouTube. On July 31st, our marketing team will go through both channels and pick the winners of both contests. So go like, share, subscribe, comment, and win some Fun Loans merch. On this episode, I have the opportunity to speak with a licensed psychologist, Jill Stoddard. Jill is an author as well as the founder and director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management here in San Diego. Jill is no rookie when it comes to overcoming these negative factors that plague us all. We speak about what triggers anxiety, how you can calm an anxious borrower, and how you can overcome your fears of rejection when it comes to meeting new referral sources. Listen in as we talk about how current technology is keeping us from uncertainty, creating confidence, and why it's beneficial to face your fears head on. Welcome to the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast. Listen in as CEO John Maddox of Fund Loans reveals tips, secrets, and origination ideas to fill your pipeline with million dollar opportunities. Welcome to the show. I'm John Maddox. I'm here with Jill Stoddard. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Yes, this is great. Um, so you are the owner of Center for Stress and Anxiety Management, like a clinic, right? Or a it is, yeah. It's a it's an outpatient psychotherapy practice. So we see people who have um, all different kinds of anxiety, worry, panic attacks, obsessive compulsive disorder, yeah, post traumatic stress. All wow. that good stuff. So I'm sure after the mortgage crash, there was some PTSD that some people experienced, do you think? Uh, yeah, we actually, um, even though there was a recession going on in the country, we saw a, a, an increase in people that were coming in. Um, mm-hmm. Just because of the financial health of the nation was not Gosh. great. And it was, a, yeah, a super stressful time and people were yeah. very anxious and worried. Yeah. There was a lot of divorces at the time. There were a lot of suicides, unfortunately. There were um, people lost their homes. They lost their businesses. They lost everything. Yeah. Yeah. It was, tr- it was a tough time. It was. And, we, and I thought for sure that, uh, you know, I was worried that our business would dry up because you'd think the first thing to go when people are struggling financially would be paying yeah. out of pocket for therapy. And it was actually the opposite. Um, wow. You know, that certainly happened for some people. But. I think the need became 
even stronger because it was such a tough time. Yeah, I so, bet. Yeah, yeah. So do you think, did a lot of people just go to like Xanax or like what, what, what helped the most? Was it just talking through the issues, letting them know it's, the world's not going to end and, you know, and there's another day? Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of depends on, you know, what ex- Xanax, no. Right. Um, okay. You know, Xanax is, as a benzodiazepine is a, you know, kind of a medicine you take if you're afraid of flying and have a panic attack and you kind of just right. need a Band-Aid for the day. But to use Xanax to, um, you know, manage an ongoing chronic stress is not generally a good idea. Um, That's right. You can develop a dependence to it. And, um but, you know, typically the things that we see, so whether it's, you know, whether it was through the, the crash or even when you're just dealing with kind of, um, you know, anxious home buyers or these kinds of things, the things that we tend to see that are really um, kind of trigger a lot of anxiety, it's t- it tends to be three things. So if there is a feeling of uncertainty, so if someone has a really difficult time with ambiguity, mm-hmm. uh, which humans don't like in general, you know, right. we're, we're evolutionarily programmed to mm-hmm. avoid uncertainty. Right. But if you have a particularly difficult time with uncertainty, um, a lack of perceived control mm-hmm. and a high sense of responsibility. So if you think about kind of some of the people who may have struggled the most through that time, or if you think about some of the kinds of um, folks you see in the mortgage industry and you think about like the, the, the relationship between uncertainty, level of control, responsibility, I mean, it's kind of this perfect storm. Yeah. That creates a lot of anxiety for people. And, and what people tend to do in those situations is try to get more certainty and try to get more control. Mm -hmm. And if that's possible, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's often not possible, right? So like if you think, for example, um, like, I don't know, let's say you have, like you see like a bump on your arm that Mm -hmm. you didn't have before and you think like, oh my my God, what if I have a tumor, right? Like this could be cancer. So now you're uncertain about what's going on. You feel a sense of, being out of control, probably there's some responsibility around your kids or your spouse or your job or whatnot. And so what do, what do people do when they have like amorphous medical symptoms that they feel worried about? Mm-hmm. Where they, do they, they go? They go to WebMD and then it gets worse. That's exactly right, right? <laughs> because there's so many bad things that, that could be. That's exactly right. I think yeah. the worst case scenario and then it's just downhill. But it works. In, for a minute. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Right? Like right. everything we do, whether we're avoiding something or getting over involved in something, it all works because in that minute you get online and you start searching, you have this sense of control. Mm-hmm. And for a minute, you at least think like, I'm going to get some certainty and you look right. it up and go, oh, it could just be eczema. Right. But also it could be a tumor. And then you see this big list of all the horrible things it might be. And now the uncertainty. dry mouth. You're like, hmm, I have those. Exactly. Right. You can convince yourself you have any of these horrific diseases. So now the uncertainty is higher. The perceived control is lower. Right. And so then, of course, like this is the anxiety ends up being worse. I'm sure it's a long question, but why do you, why do some people have more anxiety than others? Is it something nurture, nature, what is? All of the above. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, there's been lots of studies that have looked at that and generally, depending on the very specific question, but generally it tends to come out about 50-50, nature, nurture. Hmm. Um, so there's a genetic 
component. There's even now, um, you know, epigenetics. So even if there isn't a long family history of anxiety, if someone, um, you know, let's say someone was in Vietnam and developed PTSD and comes home and then has a child that because of epigenetics, that anxiety that was just developed can Mm. then be, you know, the expression of those genes can actually be passed down Mm. to someone and then you're raised by that person. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's a genetic component. There has a lot to do with kind of experiences growing up of, um, you know, kind of chronic ongoing experiences where maybe there was a limited sense of control growing up. And then there can be specific factors like a traumatic event or experimenting with drugs. And it's almost like if you thought of it like a Venn diagram, Hmm. you know, if you only had one of these things, you might not really deal with a whole lot of anxiety. If two of those things overlapped, maybe you have some anxiety, but it's not, you know, interfering or maybe rising to the level of what would be considered like a clinical diagnosis. Hmm. But if all of those three things overlap, then that's often how we see that and why people don't really like come out of the womb with an anxiety disorder, right? Like someone might develop an anxiety disorder at 18 when they go to college, someone else not till they're 30. And part of that can be that, you know, if there's a traumatic event or there's an, you know, some sort of specific situation that kind of tends to trigger these things at different times. I would think that some of it starts young though, right? Like Mm -hmm. some of it, like you see certain kids are bold and they'll just do it. They don't, they don't, they don't have as much fear, but then other kids don't want to go on a roller coaster because they're scared or whatever it might be. They have anxiety about that or they have anxiety about the dark, you know, so I'm sure it starts at at some young ages as well. Absolutely. And part of that is, you know, temperament that we know kind of kids, they may not come out of the womb with an anxiety disorder, but generally do come out of the womb sort of more behaviorally inhibited or not. And so behavioral inhibition is kind of the skirt clinger, you know, and you know, (laughs) right from the beginning, they tend to be a little more shy, a little more sensitive. And then depending on, you know, how they're raised and other environmental factors that can kind of, you know, um, differentiate the trajectory. But then there's all sorts of really normal fear that like a fear of the dark, like lots of kids go through those things mm-hmm. and they're just phases and they sort of correct themselves over time. And so what about people that, that are afraid of buying homes? Now I'm sure that that's something that, you know, whether, whether or not they had a foreclosure, like the crash, you know, completely just was embarrassing. It was like they lost their home. I mean, luckily a lot of people lost their home. So it's not as, is like isolated. Like if someone lost their home and it wasn't the crash, different whole different time than or different experience than it's someone who lost it during the crash because they're they weren't alone there's millions of people that had gone through that and and maybe not millions but there's hundreds of thousands of people that went through foreclosure and um do you ever see people that are now a afraid of buying a home as a first-time home buyer or be afraid of coming back and buying because of the foreclosure experience that they had. Yeah. Is there, is there a tie with that or is it just, well, cause it's a big deal. It is a, house. a big deal. It's a really yeah. big deal. And so far I can't say I've ever had someone come to therapy for that reason. Right. Although I've had a lot of people come to therapy because of a remodel. Hmm. There's, <laughs> yeah. there is something about remodeling so a, a kitchen home. Or do I have a modern? It, like, it is so stressful that it does wow. often, it is often the straw that breaks the camel's back. The people come, and come for therapy. Um, and it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it's a good example of where you really do see 
the control issue, the uncertainty issue, mm-hmm. uh, the responsibility issue. And it's one of the very few choices. Um, well, let me back up. The, so people who struggle with anxiety to begin with frequently have trouble making decisions mm-hmm. because there's this sense that you know, wanting the certainty, wanting the control, there's a sense that there's a right decision and a wrong decision, Mm -hmm. right? Black and white is comfortable. Yes. And that's very rarely the way the world works, right? Like we make decisions and those decisions have consequences and some of them we like and some of them maybe we don't like and then it's trial and adjustment. That's how we learn how to pivot. Um, And there are very few decisions that are, you know, you're, you're, signing in blood and you can't change your mind. Right, right. Suicide would be one, mm-hmm. right? Um, and buying a house isn't one. Right. But, but it gets kind of close, right? right? Like, yeah. if you sign those papers and it is a done deal, yeah. there are a lot of really negative consequences if you decide that you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. It's not the right neighborhood. It's not the right school system. I don't like this particular dwelling after all. Right. So it puts a lot more pressure mm-hmm. um, to make the quote unquote right decision. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. And do you yeah. see that maybe with, uh, with, with millennials versus, you know, Gen Xers, is there a change in that? Because I know from what I've, from some studies I've seen, Gen Xers, um, the difference that millennials are more mobile. They don't want to be locked down. They want to have more flexibility with mm-hmm. kind of where they're, we're living. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen that kind of trend with that at all? I don't know that I can say I've seen that, though I think that really makes sense just given the way the world is and what they're exposed to. But what I absolutely see is, so if you think about this idea that we're evolutionarily programmed to avoid uncertainty, right? Like Mm -hmm. you, you see a vague figure off in the distance and it could be a bear, it could be a blueberry bush, you don't really know. Mm And if you think, like, better to be safe than sorry, right? Eh, mm-hmm. Could be a bear. I'm going to go hang out in the cave, sure. take, not take my chances. You might miss a meal. But if you were like, ah, I'm sure it's fine. Right? I'm sure it's blueberry bush, not a bear. And you're wrong. You yeah. become the meal, right? right? So if you think about evolution and survival of the fittest and all of these things, we're literally designed to worry Mm-hmm. about like what's up ahead right. and to avoid uncertainty or to resolve uncertainty. Because mm-hmm. if you really know whether it's a bear or blueberry bush, now you really have an advantage, right? right? Okay. Right. So now fast forward to today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when we were growing up, we are programmed to not like uncertainty, but we, we get a lot of practice tolerating it. So you get better at being able to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But now with technology, everything you ever want to know is pretty much at your fingertips the very moment you want to know it. Right. No matter how small, right? Like who won best picture in 1980? Ask Alexa, ask Siri, you'll know instantly. Yep. If you're going to pick a restaurant, a movie, a product, everything has reviews. Right. So you're really like never taking a chance. Exactly. So those like muscles for learning how to tolerate uncertainty, mm-hmm. learning through experience that like it's not a big deal or even if you have a bad experience, that's also not a big deal. Mm-hmm. They've sort of atrophied. Interesting. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah, like if you think about millennials, like that has been their whole entire life and will continue to be the case for so young people and technology to do that. 
Exactly. Because it's all just like we we can't remember phone numbers anymore because it's all in our phones. We exactly. can't remember directions because we rely on the maps. Right. That, yeah. So. so now think about making a decision like buying a home. Yeah. Right. You can't get on Amazon <laughs> and read reviews, reviews yeah. for that home. That's true. You know, and I'm sure there are people who are doing a whole lot of kind of Google searching to try to get much more certainty and control over how to make Yeah, all that stuff. I mean, it's probably through the roof, I imagine. Neighborhoods, schools, every bit of information you can possibly find. Right, right. But sometimes the more questions you ask, the more questions you create. True. And there's just never going to be a situation where you know with 100% certainty that this house, this neighborhood, whatever it is, is the right decision. Yeah. Because there's kind of no such thing. Right, right. Right? But then that just, so the combination of this is a huge decision. It's kind of irreversible, at least for a couple years, unless you're really independently wealthy. Mm -hmm. And there's really no way to get that level of full certainty and control. Someone brought up on the last podcast, they said, the difference between buying a home and say like going on Travelocity and buying an airplane ticket is huge, right? Like you can survive, you know, I screwed up and I bought the wrong airplane ticket, you know, I can go back and either cancel the flight or do, do something to, to, but if you make the wrong decision on a house, it's a whole nother level. It's, it's, it could be financially devastating. You know, people might worry like, Oh my God, are are the home values going to go down? Am I going to lose money? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the crash was 75 years in the making, right? So there were, there were a little bit of dips along the way across 50 years or 75 years. There was some, some you know, if you look at a, a history map of, of, of home prices, there's always these little kind of dips and, and things like that. But, but this one was a big dip. But then it corrected and went back up. And now here we are where values are still, you know, going up above where we were at the peak. And I think, you know, when you, when you think about inflation and how, home, you know, home values over time, you know, you, you talk to your grandfather or grandma and they say, well, I bought a house and it was $15,000 and now it's, you know, 200, 300, whatever, what, whatever the value is now, but it's, it's so much higher than what it was 30 years, 40 years, 50 years ago. And I think there's probably a lot of people that have anxiety about just that crash that created this anxiety of like, that maybe I should never buy a home because if I buy a home, maybe it'll go up a little bit and then it's going to wipe me out and then I'm going to have no money versus what the reality is. If you look over history in 75 years, no matter what values have gone up, mm-hmm. you know, so if you own a home for 30 years, you're going to, you're going to always come out ahead because the, you know, whether or not the, there's another dip or another crash, there still is that history showing us that values are going to continue to right. go up. So right. I think there's just awareness that needs to be out there in the marketplace so people can know the certainty of, you know, I think mainly it's because of inflation because our dollar is worth less, right? So, I mean, the cost of ice cream is was a quarter at thrifty, you know, ice cream, and now it's $2. The same thing with homes is it's just going to continue to go up just because of that. But I think it's it's... You know, it's a small thing because it's not like a traumatic thing, but just how would you say like a mortgage broker could give certainty to uh, to a home buyer? Mm. Well, they probably can't 
Right. Right. They and, can try. And, I mean, I think a couple things. One is your your point is excellent that what's important really is the slope of the line. And what people mm-hmm. tend to do is, you know, if you almost picture like you're drawing the, the graph and you, mm-hmm. you know, if you picture this, right, if I'm here and I'm looking right here, what I need to do is come out here and look at the whole picture. Yeah. And look at the the slope, the relationship, the the, the big picture, not right. the part that the, so what happens with fear or anxiety mm-hmm. is it like literally um, narrows our focus onto whatever the perceived threat is. Mm-hmm. So you might even if you notice that you're like, I don't know, you're going through something really stressful and you're like, God, I can't, I don't know where I put my keys. I missed a mm-hmm. meeting yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, that is normal. That happens because the brain is doing what it's supposed to do, which is paying attention to the threat. Right. So if it's fear, that's that in the moment acute response where you need to fight or flee, you know, to save your life. Mm-hmm. And if it's anxiety related, but different, it's that future, like what's up around the corner and I need to be prepared for mm-hmm. action in the case that something dangerous happens. And so the attention goes to the threat to be able to do what you need to do essentially to survive and protect yourself. And so, you know, I think what you're describing is people are narrowing their attention onto the perceived threat. Yeah. And it's narrow because you're looking at one data point rather right. than kind of pulling back. And so, you know, one of the things we do in therapy is sort of talk about broadening that perspective. Yeah. So that you're not just looking at that point of threat, but really kind of seeing big the picture. whole big picture and taking the rest of the information in, mm-hmm. kind of getting out of that like hind brain primitive mm-hmm. um, survival kind of mode that is absolutely necessary and helpful when you're under true threat. Right. But often with anxiety, it's like responding to a false alarm. Yeah, Um, good point. So it's kind of pulling back. So I think even just doing what you're talking about and like providing some education, bigger data points, some reassurance, yes, which of course there's still no guarantee. Right. But also that, um, you know, I think the tendency, if you think about when, if someone comes to you, a, a friend, a client, a kid, and says, you know, like, oh, I'm just, I'm so anxious that I'm gonna fail this test. Yeah. I'm so worried. What if I fail? What if I fail? What's the tendency to, to, to do or say? You'll be all right. Or, exactly. Yeah. Right? Because we want people we care about to feel good, yeah. to not be in pain. And so we want to reassure them. Right. Don't be anxious. You'll do fine. Yeah. But the problem with that is they're already anxious. And you don't actually have any idea how they're going to do on the test. Right. Right? So it's coming from a good place, but it's not actually helpful. Mm. Or if it is, it might be just like a teeny bit in the moment, but they're going to need more eventually. Right? So it's really not all that effective. Is it better to ask questions or what's what's the better method? I mean, so one is, yeah, that's scary. Like you care about your test and you want to do well. Hmm. Right. So where you're just sort of like validating yeah. because they're already having the emotion. Right. So if you say, don't be anxious, you'll do fine. Now they're anxious and they feel <laughs> bad about it because mm. they're being told they shouldn't feel anxious. <laughs> right. Right. So if you think about this from like a client perspective, yeah. if someone's really freaking out about buying a house or signing their name on, you know, loan docs mm-hmm. to say anything to the effect of like, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Um, 
maybe a little bit helpful, but like not helpful enough. Yeah. So I think to be able to first validate, like this is a big deal, right? Like this is scary. It is uncertain. You know, I would be lying if I promised you that there's never going to be another crash again. Right. But. 75 years in the making. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. Right. There's you know, a lot counts. of reckless lending going on. There was overbuilt mm-hmm. houses. There's a lot of data points that you can fill in to, to give them assurances. Right. So that you're, but you're kind of doing both of these things. Right. So that there's, there's kind of an acknowledgement that, you know, this is tough and it's hard. You, you can't really, there's no such thing as a right or wrong decision when it comes to the house that you're buying or the neighborhood you're in. Mm-hmm. But you don't strike me, you know, I know you're not an impulsive person because, you know, and you probably have data points to, you know, yeah. you've emailed me about this and you've talked to this attorney or this real estate agent, whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, I know you've given this a lot of thought mm-hmm. and I'm really good at my job. Right. And right, like, right. and then the data point stuff. And here's what I can tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ultimately you're acknowledging that this is tough and if we pull back from just the threat of what if it's wrong, mm-hmm. you know, there's all of this other big picture information so that you can be reasonably assured that this is a wise move. Right. But, you know, you're right. There are no guarantees. But ultimately, are you going to be the type of person that's like willing to go for it? Yeah. Right. Like face pursue your fears. this dream. That's exactly it. Because what's the alternative? Talk to me about that. Talk to me about facing your fears. I know that's something you do yeah. in your practice a lot. So can it you give is. us some examples? Yeah, yeah. So in treating anxiety and specifically phobic kinds of issues around anxiety, the gold standard treatment that has the most evidence is exposure-based therapy. And so it's literally facing the things that you're afraid of. And so... Um, if you are afraid of social situations, maybe public speaking, that's the <laughs> most common fear across yeah. the, the world. Um, then the therapy would really be about gradually approaching the thing that you're most afraid of. And so mm. we don't, t- there's something called flooding, which is go give a speech to 10,000 people. But most people, can't there's no that. way in hell they would do it, right? <laughs> right? So typically we approach it gradually. So we might create something like a hierarchy where you start with something small. You know, maybe it's just a one-on-one kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of work your way up. Virtual reality is being used Technology, now, yeah. which is really cool. You can actually kind of give a speech to an audience just using VR goggles, <laughs> which is really neat. Is that like something that they have on Xbox or is it on like computer? Yeah. They, you can Xbox get it through gaming. It. You can do it on phones. You know, they know now make Facebook the goggles. Facebook actually has like a thing called Facebook 360. Oh, I, I didn't know about that. It's the next evolution of Facebook. Yeah, yeah I saw it on, uh, on uh, Oculus. That's really cool. Yeah, the the technology's happening. We have no idea quickly. what's about to change in our whole. It's gonna like, as soon as five G hits and then VR hits and those together, it's gonna be no, next yeah. level. Which is which probably would be good for people that are trying to face fears, right? You can go up on a mountain in VR. Exactly. And you can go in an airplane if you're afraid of you know. That's exactly there's right. There's all kinds of things yeah. you could probably do. Well, people, a lot of people are afraid to fly. Yeah. And that's a hard exposure to do mm-hmm. because buy you, a ha- ticket. you have to yeah. have money. You have to right. have resources because you have to be able to buy a ticket and you have to pay for your therapist time. Sure. Because typically we do the exposures together first Mm -hmm. and then clients will do them on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, We will go to the 
flying schools. So you just buy like a half hour of time and then Mm -hmm. it's not expensive, but it's really scary for them because it's a prop plane, which is usually even harder than a you know, a commercial airline. So, yeah. but the, but and virtual more dangerous reality than, than a commercial. and potentially more dangerous. Yeah. Right. Those are the ones you right. hear about going down. Like that's true. That's true. Family of six died. And, and you, oh. we, we want it. We want exposure has to be to something safe, not to something right. traumatic. Otherwise it's not therapeutic. Right. Um, but it is, there are ways around it, but virtual reality will really, you know, boost our ability to do some of these more difficult exposures, even if people don't have the same, resources. Mm -hmm. So essentially what happens um, is if you are fearful of something and your mind is saying, don't do this, or you might die or be humiliated or fail in some way, you're not going to do it. Because that would be crazy. If you're really convinced this this terrible thing is going to happen, why on earth would you do that? Unless you're a masochist of some kind, (laughs) right? Um, Then you'd need a different kind of therapy. And so what happens with exposure is you're essentially testing those thoughts out. So, you know, you go and you do give the speech or get on the airplane or whatever the case may be. And you're essentially learning by experience that that thing you're so afraid is going to happen doesn't actually happen. Hmm. Um, And generally, even if it does, it's almost never as bad as your mind says it is. And you can handle it. Right. So there's really this kind of learning um, by you learn you learn that you can cope hmm. and all of that really reduces the stress and anxiety response to whatever that stimulus is yeah i think a lot of um mortgage people they remember the crash we we remember it it was it was not fun it was a time where we had to sell our homes if we had them we had to sell our investment properties or, or let them go we had to cut back and not you know we weren't able to eat out all the time like we used to probably sell some of our nice cars just cut back on vacations and so I think a lot of people in the mortgage business now save a lot more than they used to, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a lot of people in the mortgage business, I, I think, are worried that, you know, especially like when the rates go up, there's probably a lot of anxiety that hits. And luckily, like with what we're doing, you know, in our product line is we're kind of a hedge against the rates because when the rates go up, it's good for us. It's so it's, you can have your business where you're doing the a paper, like Fannie Freddie bank, bank type of loans. But then when, you know, those rates go up and business slows, you have this other stuff like what we call non QM, which is, you know, loans for entrepreneurs, loans for people who have had credit events, different things, just human things, human elements in life that make you not fit into a perfect box. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think by having our products, having our type of lending capability opens yourself up to not have to have the same anxiety as if, you know, you didn't have this type of product. Because if, if you were, like a lot of the loan business is is fluctuating. If the rates are low, you're crushing it. It's like feast or famine. So the loan brokers are killing it. Like in certain years, right, there's there's low rates. Everyone's refining. Mm-hmm. You know, the mortgage guys are, girls are all, you know, blowing money and, and going to Vegas and doing their vacations. <laughs> then when the rates go up it's like whoa everything slows down people are getting laid off and so this this is very i would say there's a lot of anxiety that that happens in that because you know you're checking the news you're you're worried about the fed was the fed going to do the rates going to go up um 
so I think, you know, by, I'm just kind of, I know I'm blabbing, but if, if you have a product like ours that gives you a hedge, I think that helps probably with some mm-hmm. of the anxiety that mortgage people would, would, you know, would face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think anything where there's any level of unpredictability, yeah. there is going to be, I mean, exactly what you're talking about. There's going to be a greater kind of breeding ground for anxiety. That's where it, that's where it festers, you know? Yeah. Um, but where you're talking about with that, you know, when you say people remember the crash, I mean, the thing I immediately think about is, you know, it is somewhat like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. where, you know, if you think about, um, if you get in a car accident, and it's you know, and it's a it's a traumatic experience. Right. Um, there, you might have only ever had one car accident, and mm-hmm. you might have driven a car three hundred seventy-five thousand other times. Right. Right. But the way we're wired is to remember the traumatic event so it doesn't happen again. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's and that's yeah. adaptive. It's like, ooh, I don't want to make that mistake again because I could have died and I didn't. I got to make sure. You know, so I think that's part of what's going on, I'm sure, with the crash, too, is that you're wired to, like, remember that so that never happens again because that was terrible. Yep. And because of that tendency to focus on threat, mm-hmm. there's a, you know, a, we're not necessarily pulling back and remembering, like, looking at all of the other data, including what you're talking about. If there are these other products, these other things that you can use, there's this almost like a safety net Yeah. that, um, you know, the the it's sort of like paying attention to what the fear or anxiety tells you that's Mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm. Like where are there moves or mistakes or whatever? What do I need to learn from that experience that I had? You know, if I, if I crashed my car because I wasn't checking my rear view mirror, then I'm going to make sure I check my rear view mirror next time. Right. So like, where are the places that I can learn and adjust because that will actually benefit me, Mm -hmm. but not overdoing it where I just stopped driving the car. Right. Right. Unless it's the Tesla. Then you can just. (laughs) (laughs) Then the car can drive itself for you. Right. But, you know, you don't want to be overcorrecting to the point where you're limiting your life and your living and your experiencing and your ability to, you know, grow and make money and be successful in the mortgage industry. So what can I learn? Where do I need to, like, let go a little bit and also know things are different now? You know, the entire industry has really changed and that there are other options, alternatives, and, you know, again, kind of taking that broader view, if that makes sense. That does. That does. How much in technology, we were talking a little bit about that, like with VR, like give us some some examples of how you can deal with stress with VR and with, is it just the experiences that you were saying? Yeah. I mean, the only... Just overcoming those or is there other... I mean, I think a lot of with the, the VR that I'm familiar with is really it, it's an it's a platform to face fear mm. that you can do right at home or in yeah. a therapist's office that doesn't require. You know, a lot of what I do is I'll go drive down to the Coronado Bridge mm-hmm. for people who have difficulty driving over bridges. Mm-hmm. And it's 45 minutes away from my office. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it's a it's a lot of time and resources traffic and it's, it's and traffic. Worse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. It's powerful. It's effective. Right. Um, But I think what the VR allows is just so much more flexibility in terms of options Mm -hmm. and ways that we as therapists can really get creative because we're not confined. Do you have Um, a VR headset in your office? I do. So my husband is actually an (laughs) IT guy. Okay. And and he is in charge of the entire VR lab down at the UCSD library. So he's kind of a VR expert. But the problem with that is that it has to be, you know, like 
perfect and amazing. So mm-hmm. we have the initial makings for the VR, but it has not yet been set up. Okay. So we're in the process of making that happen. That's cool. But not quite doing it yet. Um, but have lots of high hopes. I've seen some of the some of the example graphics where um, you know for heights, mm-hmm. it looks like you're standing on a beam. Yeah. Really, I mean it, and it's it is very realistic. I've tried a VR headset, and it it is very realistic. <laughs> Your mind can can in, can adapt and make it feel like you are in Absolutely. that world which is which is crazy to me to think like what what is going to happen like what yeah. is going to happen to our society they have vr for combat mm-hmm. um you know combat heights social kinds of public speaking mm-hmm. ocean job interviews i think I interviews that. yeah right and some of those are easy for us to do in session because you can do a mock job interview but right. when i stop being anxiety provoking to a client i then have to bring somebody in mm-hmm. uh, you know so then that makes it more difficult again yeah someone they've never met and then it's mm-hmm. like this situation that's all new and it's and yeah, that's to good to practice something i think is is uh is huge uh, you know it's it's a great way to get over fears yeah it's, for sure it's really cool well you're mastering a skill but you're also learning this isn't dangerous nothing bad happens i can do it yeah. you know i can handle it yeah it's experiential you, learning in your practice do you deal a lot with entrepreneurs or do you see um, some do I have a lot of, I've had a handful, like but not a people. lot. Self-employed people, mm-hmm. some. Um, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, when they do seek out any kind of services, they often end up going to more like executive coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's something about that term that's a little, there's still some stigma around searching for, um, you know, seeking out mental health therapy, services, therapy. And I think even more so for men than women. Um, and so I think sometimes services that speak more to that, that sound less like therapy and mental health and more like executive coaching, even though it's a a very similar Similar, kind of thing. Um, so I don't, I mean, I see, I see it here and there, but not, you're an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. What, yeah. what got you into working for yourself? Probably my, I, it's in my genes. Yeah. My dad is an entrepreneur. Always, always has been. He, he wrote a book. He self-published it mm-hmm. called Reflections of a Serial Entrepreneur. That's cool. Um, it's awesome. It came out of everyone and their brother asking him for advice. And That's he would awesome. give these little snippets of advice and decided I should write this down. And he wanted to write, you know, little two page chapters. And he got a publisher who wanted him to expand these to 30 page chapters. And he said, no, that's not my vision. What made him successful was that he was always on the cutting edge of the next thing. Hmm. So I think he even anticipated attention spans (laughs) unknowingly when he had this idea. The YouTube generation. That's right, exactly. So he self-published and it's all these just little advice chapters it's awesome i think about it all the time do you read um, it like do you oh go i've read it a couple it? times and the very first thing he does is talk about what makes him qualified to write a book about being an entrepreneur and the very <laughs> first story he tells is when he was in his fraternity in college he had some kind of steam bath or something and would charge his fraternity brothers money <laughs> to come use it and it's how he made extra money and that was his first unofficial official business so i just grew up around it all the time um and when i first got licensed i was working for someone else in a practice and um they were taking most of my money 
<laughs> right? And I thought, yeah. you know, I'm working awfully hard to be giving someone else a lot of my money. And I feel like I can do the other part of this. Right. So I'm just going to go do it myself. And I'm, I'm a little more risk averse than my dad was. You know, he just went full steam ahead, supporting a family of five, starting a business. No idea if it'll work out. I had a full-time job and then started my practice, you know, small one day a week and then grew it over time. But there's nothing there's like being something... in charge. Do you th- it's true. <laughs> do you think there's something in the brain of entrepreneurs that makes them different from people who are just nine to fivers that I'm sure like what I'm I mean, sure. cause obviously you have to be an optimist. You have to hmm? be, you have to have, you have to have less fear of the unknown. You have to have like kind of like a pioneer explorer, you know, DNA, I yeah. think, because you, you, you can't really fear the unknown. I mean, if you fear the unknown, you're going to probably go work in a nine to five. Mm-hmm. But if you're like, you know what? I welcome, you know, any kind of, adversity or any kind of and I think being an optimist too is a lot of people say and I, I feel this way is if I knew how hard it was going to be before I started I wouldn't have done it mm. hmm. interesting because it is really hard yeah it's, diff- it's so you difficult. almost have to be slightly naive like yeah. to not know what you're getting yourself into yeah. to be willing to do it yeah you're naive or or just ignorant or Right. Yeah. Well, I think optimism is probably a perfect word. Right. Is that, you know, you, you, you. Like, I can, whatever comes my way, I can handle it. I'll figure it out. It. Right. It I can out. handle it. I can figure it out. So you don't yeah. really have the, the, the anxiety as much. So that's probably why you don't see as, as many entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know what? That's a really good point because I think you're also right about the uncertainty piece. You have to be okay right. with a huge level of uncertainty right. and not liking uncertainty and anxiety are really those two things that, that so go hand in hand right? and being okay with uncertainty is required to be willing to start your own business. And, and that doesn't really create a lot of anxiety for, for Do that kind of person. you see a lot person. of stay at home? Um, I don't want to say moms, but just stay at home spouses do you, do you see a lot of those? I do yeah I see a number of people who and it's often stay-at-home parents who very heavily identified with their careers prior to choosing to become stay-at-home parents mm-hmm. so they're often coming in in kind of a like identity what am I doing interesting you know or or they're about to have empty nests so it's like, now what? Because I yeah. was this person then, and then I was this person, and like, now who am I, and what mm-hmm. do I do? And trying to figure some of that out. Is, is wrapped up in, in that, right? Yeah. And like, that's about to be taken away. Or I, I heard some, someone say this uh, once that, and I wonder what you think of it. When someone doesn't have major problems in their life, mm-hmm. like they don't have, you know, crisis crises or different things going on um, that that are big problems. Sometimes they create Mm. problems in their mind that are worse. Really, they're nothing. It's like it's a no big deal, right? Like, but but in their mind, they've created it to be a bigger problem because they don't have their other day to day issues. Like, for instance, if someone's at work and like, you know, the server goes down and everyone's can't use their email and it's this big problem, right, that they have to solve. That's a problem. That's right. something that that certainly they have to deal with right now. When someone's maybe stay at home 
and you know what you know there's you ran out of milk it's not like major problems that are you know urgent things yeah. that you have to deal with but I wonder well, if there's... it takes my brain in two different directions I mean one is I think globally whether you're it's a being stay at home or or whatever your kind of job is or whatever's going on in your life that humans really need to have some sense of purpose. Oh yeah. You know, like they need to feel like they're, whatever they're about, whatever they're doing, there's some meaning and purpose to it, that it matters. And I think a lot of times just kind of like the day to day when you're home, I mean, lots of people feel like they are very connected with the purpose that they have when it comes to raising kids and things like that. And other people really don't have that same sense. And so that can create difficulties. Um, but that can be true no matter what it is you're doing. You know, I I had a friend who was really successful working in the fashion industry, but just kind of had this moment where she was like, what's the point of this? Like, who am I helping? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but the other thing it makes me think of is with clients who struggle with anxiety, Um, the finding something wrong piece of it is they will often say that they actually do better. So, so people with anxiety are worriers, right? And that if something goes wrong, if the server breaks down, they're almost relieved to have a problem to deal with because then it's something to focus on and there's a solution. There's like something I can do to be active and focus on this and fix it. When everything's going well, it's like this, and you have anxiety, there's like this waiting for the other shoe to drop. There's this constant worrying about like what's going to, ha- is there going to be an earthquake? Is the server going to yeah. blow up? Is, And Which that's is much more uncomfortable, yeah. you know? Right. Um, and not making up stuff in like a, I like to create drama way, but the nature of anxiety and worry is that mm-hmm. that is what the brain does. And it's, what's interesting is research actually shows you'd think that the more you worry, the more anxious you would be. But for people who have generalized anxiety disorder, when they worry, it actually reduces their physiological anxiety mm. because they're doing something cognitively that gives them a sense of control and certainty. Mm. So if I think about the possibility that the you know big earthquake is gonna come here to San Diego, and I think through where my kids will be, where I'll be, what we're gonna do, where the supplies are, you know, <laughs> I'm going through a catastrophe that might never happen, which seems like a lot of unnecessary pain, but it actually does create a sense of it, right? A perception. And you're kind of going through what you were saying about um, facing your fear exposure therapy. You're going through that, but in your mind in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's giving. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of what would happen if I, if all this stuff happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then maybe if I just worry through every eventuality, I can prevent it from happening or I can, (laughs) not that you can prevent an earthquake, but I can prevent something bad happening as a result of an earthquake because I'm prepared. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's sort of a fantasy. I mean, it's not really doing those things right? and it's creating that, you know, you're like living through something before it's even really happening in some ways. Right. Yeah. So I think you deal sometimes, you said, with people who have fear of, you know, like breaking the ice, whether it's dating, meeting new people. A lot of our viewers are mortgage brokers who are looking for referral sources. Mm. So they have to go in, they have to meet a new realtor, they have to meet a new, you know, maybe it's a CPA. They have to take them to lunch, tell them about their products so that they can get referrals, right? And then others, you know, might be... um, 
they got to go find a divorce attorney so they can get referrals or a bankruptcy attorney uh, and just other or, or just cold call right mm-hmm. you got fear of, of picking up that phone mm-hmm. and dialing and getting reject rejection and that and, and that I wonder if if you have any advice for someone like that who's afraid of doing you know those things like how can they overcome those fears so that when it t- comes time to go and that because that's inhibiting their their ec- economics yeah their absolutely ability to make money so is there something they can do is there a practice is there a, a therapy that they can yeah. go through to, to become more confident so this is the this is the answer no one ever really likes but I also think it's important and powerful and like what we really want because anxiety is uncomfortable yeah. is like just tell me something I can do to make it go away right mm-hmm but what I'm gonna say is the real key is changing your relationship to anxiety. And, I, and I'll, I'll explain why. Let's say I hook you up to a, like an anxiety detector machine. It's like a lie detector, right? Sure. But it tells me how anxious you are. And I say, just don't get anxious and you'll be totally fine. Mm-hmm. But if my meter you know, registers right here, it's gonna deliver a lethal shock and you're gonna die. But just don't get anxious <laughs> and everything will be just fine. Right? What's yep. going to happen? I'm going to be anxious. And you're dead. Yeah. Right? And if you think about why that is, it's because you're now saying, oh my God, I can't get anxious. I can't get anxious. Anxiety is bad. Anxiety is deadly. It's going to kill me if I get anxious. I can't be anxious. So now you're anxious about anxiety. Yeah. So you're anxious. Yeah. So the idea is that like, as long as you're unwilling to feel anxious, you will be anxious. Interesting. And same with stress, right? It yeah. kills me every time I see on the Today Show or wherever, like, stress will kill you. It's literally going to give you a heart attack, right? <laughs> it's like, well, now you're stressed about having stress, so you're stressed. So you're screwed, Yeah. right? And anxiety and stress, they're part of life. It of is. course you're anxious if you're cold calling someone. Right. And think about it. The more anxious you are, you know what that's telling you? It's just telling you it matters to you. Yeah. Right? The stakes are high. Right. If you didn't care about it, you wouldn't be anxious. Very true. Right? So to me, it's all about changing your relationship to anxiety, knowing that if this is here, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but it's just a feeling. Mm -hmm. It's not dangerous. It's not, you know, it's temporary. I can handle it. And, and do you think it goes away the more you do it? Is that 100%? That, that's part it absolutely of the does. exposure therapy, right? It is part of the exposure so therapy. So I think that what people need to understand is that, you know, yes, it's going to be uncomfortable the first few times, mm-hmm. but you have to get through that uncomfortableness. Right. Kind of like jumping off the high dive the first time you do it. It's incredibly stressful. Yeah. Once you do it the first time, the second time's going to be a little easier. Third mm-hmm. time's way easier. Fourth time, you're having fun. Yep. It's exciting. Probably like the same time, you know, same thing about going on a roller coaster for the first time, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So, Because you're learning through experience yeah. that it's not dangerous. You can handle it. Right. The feelings you have are just feelings. And so what's happening is you're saying like, oh, okay, I can be willing to have mm-hmm. space for all this and this can be okay. Right. And you know, you're approaching instead of avoiding. And so over time, it does get easier. But certain things that are always important to you will always create some level of yeah. discomfort because you care about it. So, it matters, so like yeah. looking at anxiety, it's just a neon arrow telling you this matters. Interesting. And you don't have to shy away from it. And exactly what you said. And then if you're willing to get over that hump and keep at it, 
Mm-hmm. Eventually it does. It gets easier over time. So do you think people should do exposure therapy, like in role playing with other f- people? Mm-hmm. Is that is that a good way to get mm-hmm. over that? Yeah. I mean, one of the key things about exposure, like if you or, you know, if your listeners think about like, okay, yeah. I mean, everybody can think of something that they were scared of and then they did it a bunch and they weren't yeah. scared anymore. We've all had that experience. But everyone can also think of the opposite of that. Right. Like, oh, well, I've given 25 speeches and it's never been any easier. So that's not true for me. Right. Mm -hmm. But generally, the reason for that is because there's still like some kind of avoidance going on. Yeah. So, for example, if I um, let me think of an example. So, like, let's say we're I'm afraid of heights and we go up on top of the roof of the building, you know, every single day for the next however many weeks. If I'm going up there and the whole time I'm kind of holding on to the door, you know, the part where you come out onto the roof and I'm mm-hmm. like holding on for dear life, I'm not saying, oh, this is safe. I can go up here, it's okay, I'm not gonna fall or throw myself off. I'm saying, well, yeah, nothing bad happened, but that's because I was holding on to the door. Uh-huh. If I had let go of the door, then for sure I would have fallen off. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you're facing your fear, mm-hmm. you have to really be facing it. Like that that willingness thing when I said, as long right. as you're not willing to have you have it, willingness really is kind of an all or nothing. Like if you yeah. think about like when you swing on a swing, you know, when mm-hmm. you were a little kid mm-hmm. and you jump off, right? you jump or you don't. Right, you can't half jump off no, the swing. No, you can't. So that's kind of what exposure is like. If you're gonna face your fear, like you jump or you don't. Now, how f- how high the swing goes, you get to decide, right? So if yeah. you're only doing little baby swings, you jump or you don't. Right. Or if you're swinging as high as you can go, you jump or you don't. Right. So like role playing, like you were asking about, you know, practicing role playing. If I'm afraid of heights, I might just start by standing on this chair before I go up on the roof. But whatever it is I'm doing to confront that fear, I have to do it with like a fully open heart, like being open and aware and allowing whatever feelings and experience show up to just be present and not doing anything to kind of hold on for dear life. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. it kind of makes me remember the story you said offline, which I'd love for you to share, uh, how it was good that the person had a negative experience. Yeah. So we were like, it'd be similar to where if we're cold calling a realtor, we're going up to someone we've never met and we're talking about our business. If they reject us, then that's actually a good experience because you got to go through that to get rid of that fear because then you're like, Oh, I got rejected. That sucked. That didn't feel good, but I'm still alive and I'm whatever. And maybe next time I'll get, you know, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. What was that example you were sharing? So the the story was a client I had early on who had pretty significant social anxiety. And the thing he was the most afraid of was asking women out on dates. Um, And he finally mustered up the courage and he asked her out and she gave him his number and he didn't get rejected, thought he was doing well. And when he called her, it turned out it wasn't her number. It was the number of one of her friends that she had been with in the group when he asked her out. And when he called, they were all together and they just laughed at him. And it and he was sucks. humiliated. It was awful. <laughs> yeah. It was, you know, and, and I mean, it wasn't, he thought his worst fear was a woman saying no. Yeah. And then he realized like, oh no, That's this not, was my worst fear. Yeah, you know, this, this worse. was worse than I could have imagined. Like he really felt humiliated and it was very painful. Yeah. And at the same time, he had this moment where he thought like, this is the thing that I have been completely revolving my life around. Like, trying to prevent this thing from happening right? because really it sucked and it felt terrible and I'm fine. I'm okay. And they're jerks Yeah, and I can move on. And so, you know, a lot of what we're doing in exposure therapy is 
testing out like the the bad thing you think is going to happen almost never happens. And we can test that a lot because yeah. that bad thing almost never happens. But the other part is sometimes it does. But even when it does, it's never as bad as your brain thinks it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And you can handle it. Right. You really can handle it. And that's the part that, you know, there are there are some um, therapies that actually try to create rejection, humiliation on purpose. Interesting. So that you can have that experience. I mean, we'll go into public and like sing at the top of our lungs. <laughs> I've had, I, I'll never forget, I had a woman who I had her put her clothes on backwards and mess up her hair and go down to a bar and talk to men. This was back <laughs> in Boston. Um, and, you know, it was right before a Red Sox game. And so it was really, really crowded. And um, That's awesome. she was gone for a long time. And I thought, oh, I finally, I finally pushed someone too far. She has escaped. She has fled. <laughs> She's and out. is never coming back. She eventually came back and said, that was the most fun I've ever had. I'm going to wear my jacket backwards from now on (laughs) because yes, people did notice. So the fear Mm -hmm. was people would notice and like think she looked weird. Right. 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 And she said people did notice, but it was just a conversation starter. Did you know you're wearing your jacket backwards? And she wasn't allowed to give a reason, like an excuse. She's Uh like, yeah, Yeah. cool. And then started the conversation. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So we would kind of create these like social experiments. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. And then you do learn like you, you can be rejected and you can handle it and it's okay. There's something about doing things that, that are fearful and getting over that. Like, I I don't know where I saw it, but I think it was on YouTube where someone was like, do something that scares you every day. Mm -hmm. You know, whether or not that's like laying on the ground in front of people or just introducing yourself or, you know, whatever, like just, just to overcome fear because, because yeah. fear is like a, it's like a, it's paralyzed, paralyzing. It can be, yeah. And it's just, it, it, if you can over, if you can overcome that, you can learn all these things that really help you in life that yeah. just make you get better. Yep. One of the things we, we now know from a lot of research is one of the, the factors that's really one of the greatest predictors of like overall well-being in life, physical, psychological, et cetera, is psychological flexibility. And all that means is, can I show up to this one moment, because that's all we've got is right here in this one moment, mm-hmm, right? right? This moment and be fully open to whatever is inside and outside my skin, whether that's comfort or discomfort, and make choices that are consistent with the person I want to be, the me I want to be, you know? Mm-hmm. So like my values, what really matters in my heart. So, you know, like what do I want to be about in this life? Right. And the more it matters to me, the harder and scarier it's going to be, the more I'm going to have imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. All those negative thoughts, the inner critic that shows up and says, you might not want to do that, right? right? Don't make that cold call. You're going to get rejected and it'll be humiliating. And who do you think you are? And all the feelings that come along with that. And what we tend to do is listen to those thoughts because they're meant to be protective, right? right? Like right. our mind is just trying to prevent us from making fools of ourselves. Absolutely. And, you know, our, we're social creatures. We don't have fangs and claws. We have each other. Some people do. Right? Well, some people do. But really, again. name names. <laughs> not me. But evolutionarily, if you hunted, gathered, etc., right. traveled together, you lived. If you were ostracized from the group, you died. Right. So again, we've evolved to care what other people think, mm-hmm. to not want rejection, to need to belong. And so when our mind is popping up saying, you're not good at this, you shouldn't make that call, you're going to get rejected, whatever the stuff is that people are struggling with, mm-hmm. it's just a way to try to stay safe, essentially. Right. Um, 
But then it often means we're living in these tiny little worlds unnecessarily because it's really not dangerous. And we can put ourselves out there and try and be vulnerable um, and fail and be rejected and continue on and succeed and, 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 you know, keep going. There's, there are very few mistakes we can make that are like, that's it. Right. Like you're done. You have no more future. Right. Right. That's true. Yeah. That leads me to something I think is really important for this podcast, which is a lot of our listeners, I think, you know, most mortgage people, they have no problem doing small loans Mm -hmm. like Fannie Freddie conforming conventional loans that are under, you know, under $500,000 and they're not in the jumbo space. But when, when you get into the jumbo space, jumbo lending, uh, realtors that are you know doing luxury homes, million dollar million dollar listings, it, it, it's a whole nother level, right? Mm-hmm. It's like there is a fear of messing that up. Mm-hmm. It's also a social fear of, you know, so not I don't know what the right word right word is, but like if someone's a status a social status higher than you, right? Let's say you know you drive a. a it's just a Toyota, right? But you know, someone else is rich and they're driving a Mercedes or a Ferrari or whatever. And for some reason, you just feel you might have this anxiety about your social status. Mm-hmm. And how do you get into doing loans that are larger and dealing with people who have more sophistication, more money, you know, they're, they're around and, and there's this like this feeling of like, I, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I can get into those type of loans mm. because it's just, uh, it's just not me. It's yeah. just, it's, it's, those people are rich and I just, you know, I've been raised this way and I don't, mm. you know, I have the same level. I'm not that same level level but in our in our career in our, our line of work we get paid on what we call basis points so whether we're doing a two million dollar loan or a two hundred thousand dollar loan we get paid say like a hundred basis points so that'd be on a two million dollar loan you're paying twenty thousand dollars on a two hundred thousand it's two thousand mm-hmm. but you do the same amount of work right right so yeah. the the point is and that we've tried to make with this podcast and with what we're doing with our type of loans is that you can do and why not try to go for the loans that mm-hmm. are the bigger loans mm-hmm. because it's the same amount of work and why why do 10 $200,000 loans when you can do one or 10 $2 million loans and get paid the same, right? So um, is there something that someone can do to help get over that fear of of where that barrier is. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know I think, saying? yeah, it's a great question. And I think what you're really talking about and my suspicion of what really gets in the way is that it boils down to confidence mm-hmm. and that people think that they need to feel confident before they act. Right. Right. Just like we want to feel motivated before we go exercise sure. or do the dishes. Right. Which is very difficult. Yeah. At, right. And so like if something's scary or you're new at it or you have any kind of inner critic that's trying to protect you from making mistakes. Yeah. That that's not always the order of operations. Maybe in high school you were like not the popular kid. And mm-hmm. so you're feeling like that could be a sin. Some, yeah. I can mm-hmm. see that. And. Um, You know, if you think about, I love this, the root of the word confidence means with trust. Okay. Right? It doesn't mean without self-doubt or with absolute assurance that I'm going to succeed. Right. But when we think about, when you picture someone that you think of as confident, Mm. you know, you think of them as like they have no self-doubt and they just, they know what they're doing and they're very, you know, optimistic and all these things. But that's not really what the root of the word means. Hmm. So confidence is really like, can I trust in myself and what matters to me and 
mm-hmm. you know, that I'm going to do what I need to do to like learn how to do this successfully and then just jump whether I feel that traditional confidence mm-hmm. or not. And of course, people who act in that way consistently develop what we think of as the feeling of confidence. Hmm. So it's just like if you, you know, hate exercise and you're like, oh, I'll just get on the treadmill for five minutes, right? You make those deals with yourself. Yeah. So instead of motivation, you know, I think of like the word motivation and then a downward arrow action. It's more like action, downward arrow, motivation. And once you're on there for five minutes, you're like, oh, I'm here. I might as well go a little bit longer, right? So it's like the action actually stimulates the motivation, which breeds more action. And I think of confidence in much the same way Mm -hmm. is whenever you're doing something that is new to you in any way like nobody I mean other than like maybe if you're Tiger Woods or someone you're not born amazing at most things that's not really how most humans work right Right, like you've 10,000 hours you have to work at it right exactly and you're not going to necessarily be instantly great at talking to people who you know have a two million dollar mortgage right but if you work work at it and then you just continue to try and try and maybe you're going to fail. You're going to fail because it gonna happens. You're going to fail and that's okay. Yeah. And you have to be willing to do it before you feel confident. Right. And I guarantee you, if you went out and interviewed all those people driving the Mercedes and the Ferraris yeah. about their process and their path, you know, with the exception of a handful of maybe like big narcissist or something, right? But like for all the regular people, there was a learning curve and there was a period at which they were willing to try even when they weren't sure that they could do it. And then once they do it successfully, a little bit more and a little bit more, then that confidence builds over time. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah, it's been great. Definitely like, comment, share, and subscribe. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you guys are looking for more content like this, we have a Fun Loans YouTube channel where we give away more tips, secrets, and origination ideas. You can also email us at info at funloans.com. And if you've made it this far, I think it's safe to say you like our content. So please subscribe, share, and send us your scenarios. Let's fund loans together.